Hey there, I'm Gabby. And I'm Sid. And this is episode 5 of Musician's Tea Time, following Tiani and I's little stint in Los Angeles. So, who did you have the pleasure to share a cup of tea with this time? It turned out to be actually several cups of coffee we had with Steve Bartek. He's mainly known as Daniel Elfman's main collaborator and orchestrator for the last 45-something years, and he was one of the driving forces behind Oingo Boingo, but he's done so much more since his humble beginnings on the flute and the cult psychedelic strawberry alarm clock back in the 60s. There's a lot Steve is up to now, and he had a lot to say about musicianship and music itself. It's peppered with anecdotes and laughter. This is a long, caffeinated chat with Mr. Bartek that is definitely worth listening to. I hope you enjoy. Let's get into it. Hello, Steve Bartek, and welcome to Musician's Tea Time. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, my pleasure. Honored to be asked. You've had a very varied career in life. Uh, how would you describe yourself at that present moment? At, at the moment, I feel very lucky that I'm still doing music um, at, at my age. I still have people that hire me and rely on me to orchestrate or um, and and to play in bands, play guitar. And I have people that enjoy playing with me and I enjoy playing with. So I, I feel very lucky I'm still doing something in music. So you've had a false start, unfortunately, but you were talking about three things that you do every day. Oh, well, I just lately to try to keep myself going. I, I, I try to do about a half hour playing my flute, which is the first instrument I, I ever learned on uh, when I was in third grade. Is I, I took flute lessons and, and I try to spend some time, maybe not a whole half hour, maybe sometimes more of writing something. And I forget what the third thing <laughs> was that I... But I, I try to play the guitar before I go to bed every night, too. So every day, even if it's busy with all the other stuff, I try to get those three things in. I recently bought a bass flute from Sam, the sax player mm. in Boingo. And uh, just blowing on it is <laughs> is kind of spiritually en- enhancing. Just the sound of the of a bass flute, is, mm. it just feels good and once, once a day. You said you started um, learning that in third grade? Yeah. What's your, as far as you can go back, what's your first memory of music? Oh, God. Um, I remember having a record player. My brother, he had the early Elvis records, so we'd have that. And my my parents had this, this one really stuck with me, had this weird record. I'm trying to remember the name of the guy. He was a harp player who wrote music, I found this out later, a harp player who wrote music for the Ernie Kovacs show. And it was a, a record that was called The Song of the Niobe Trio. And on the other side was um, an occidental slip on an oriental rug. And it it was very kind of humorous, semi-jazz, but not really. It was a harp player uh, who wrote it. And and it was very percussive. There was like marimbas and and things. And uh, the song of the Niobe Trio was used on the Ernie Kovacs show for a skit that was an ongoing skit and why my parents bought this record, I have no idea, but I listened to it over and over. And the, the song of the Night of Trio was a, a skit where they had three people in ape suits playing instruments and they bang each other on the head. And the real song was called Solfege because it goes do, re, mi, it, it, it does that in the song, but it became the song of the Trio when it was associated with uh, Ernie Kovacs. Useless information. <laughs> Yeah, that's good. Fun like, fact it's... to it. I love this. 
but that that was yeah. that was the record I remember hearing all the time. Something that inspired me when I heard the flute was it was Herbie Mann's Blue Set, a song mm-hmm. that I'd heard on the radio because my parents listened to. I think I forget the singer's name had a, had a, a song on the radio, and hearing Herbie Mann do it inspired me to to take the flute lessons. Actually, the flute lessons happened because uh, Nancy Bullington was taking flute too. <laughs> So in third grade, I wanted to sit with Aunt Nancy Billington. <laughs> did you? Yeah, we did. For you know, not, you know, we both played flute, and that was as far as it went. <laughs> uh, you mentioned ape soups in your first <laughs> memory of music. Was that like inspiration for like Mystic Nights? No, Mystic or anything? No, 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 Mystic Nights is is Danny and his brother. Right. Um, so I, I came into that. The ape suits were already there. Oh. They, 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 Synchronicities ape, there. Yeah. The, the ape suits existed when I, when I, with the Oingo Boingo, I auditioned for Danny. And he was changing his street theater to being more of a concert um, or show because mm-hmm. he, he had ended up having films made and made it into a whole show. Before that, it was just kind of a street band. Mm-hmm. Um, that his brother had put together. There's all, all kinds of you can find you know information on all that, but that yeah, the, I had nothing to do with those. Co- they were there mm-hmm. the costumes. They, uh, that's all. Danny and Liam Schneiderman, the sax player, was instrumental in putting together what the band looked like. He and Danny built the instruments that the old Boinga played, Balinese style instruments and uh, mm-hmm. balafons, African balafon styles. And did you come into that like wasn't that seventy something? 76 maybe 77 76 somewhere somewhere in there i graduated college in with 69 plus 4 73 so i had to be 74 that i finally graduated college with a degree in, in composition not knowing what the hell i was going to do and ended up playing um casuals and nightclubs i had a gig at um the baked potato with don randy and don randy was the keyboard player on all the old wrecking crew records oh, cool. and so it was it was kind of a a cool gig. Yeah. It, was, it, it wasn't really jazz, but it wasn't rock and roll either. It was Big Potato on the off nights was the cool place for all the, the fusion jazz you know, mm. play, players to be. But Don Randy had the other, the other, the other three days with his band. And, <laughs> and it was fun. We did a 5 4 version of uh, Norwegian Wood. And that was. Mm, you know, like, wow. Yeah. He was a clever man. He still is. He's still he's still around. He showed up opening for the Vatos band at one of the Canyon clubs. Oingo Boingo Foreign Members Band. Um, I call it, I refer to it as Vatos because it, it, he's the leader. He, he showed up playing with his daughter and son-in-law as an opening act. It was really great to see him. He, he plays great, you know. You said it was jazzy on guitar. Were you raised as more of a jazz person or are you all over the place? I, it's kind of all over the place, but it, it seems like a regular trajectory. Well, for, I guess for me, for a lot of players, I think. I started out the Beatles for the reason I picked up the guitar, because I, you know, my brother picked up the guitar, and so I used to sneak into his room and play his guitar until finally he stood up for me and my dad got me a guitar. So we both had a guitar, and we had a little band together for a little while, which was, which was nice. But I became enthralled with Django Reinhardt and uh, Charlie Christian early on, which is kind of jazzy. Actually, before that, I was a complete Yardbirds fanatic. Mm. Um, uh, Jeff Beck, Eric Clapton, I missed being <clears throat> being uh, attached to him with the Yardbirds because he had just left when I was like. So I learned all the Jeff Beck solos I could at the time, and so I, I was securely kind of rock and roll. I 
I wasn't very Led Zeppelin or some of that heavier stuff I wasn't quite into because I had turned to Django Reinhardt and, and Charlie Christian. And by college, I, I bought a guitar in a pawn shop that looked like the guitar Django Reinhardt had on his, <laughs> the one compilation album that was released here at the time. And it had him holding an Epiphone Emperor, which much later I find out he only played when he was in New York for maybe a month. <laughs> <laughs> and it was not a guitar he used anywhere else. But I have one like that. <laughs> So, so it's kind of like you, you go from a rock basis to jazz being put on top of it, and you end up with a fusion outlook, seems to me. So that makes it so you're not a jazz guitar player snob? No, I, I'm, I'm, def, I'm not a good enough jazz player to be a jazz player snob. Okay, we meet a lot of people back home who, um, it seems like it's a contest who can play the most complicated, you know, right chords with as many numbers and, and letters in them as possible yeah. yeah yeah no i it's one step beyond me too i mean a guy asked me once uh about indian music i forget why he asked me but the, the, it was just i try because the, the indian raga i'm trying to think of what it's called where you do an 11 8 pattern and end up on right. a downbeat yeah um and going backwards so we have to out how many of these are going to be there and how am I going to get there and what notes am I going to play that are going to actually make me I tried but not very successful I didn't completely feel it so <laughs> growing up you mentioned your brother was he a, a big mentor figure for you musically or um, there are other people that you looked up to specifically my brother was was facilitated me mm -hmm. I actually at the point where he picked up the guitar I had already been taking flute lessons, mm -hmm. so I had a knowledge of music on paper, uh, yeah. of music theory that he didn't have, mm -hmm. but he he encouraged me. He let me play his guitar. He encouraged <laughs> my dad to let me have a guitar. He, he helped me that way. He took some lessons. He took lessons for a while from, do you know who Ted Green is? I, I took two lessons from Ted Green. Ted Green was in LA, the primo teacher. He was in a rock band when I was in high school. Uh, and he ended up playing with Ray Charles for years. Mm. And, but then he came back to the Valley and he has this encyclopedic knowledge of harmony and, and motion and all those extensions that you're, you're talking about. <laughs> for instance, the, the first lesson I had with him, I could play fairly well. So he, he said, for homework, I have to come back and improvise a Bach chorale. Oh. No, a Bach invention, Bach invention, which is way more <laughs> intense. That's why I only took two lessons because he was expecting <laughs> way too much from me. Oh, no. But he, he, he's got books out and followers. It's kind of like, do you know who Lenny Burrow is? By name. Lenny Burrow, the one thing I learned from him, which is just my surface knowledge of how he, what he does, um, harmonics, mixing harmonics and, and uh, straight string, straight open strings. Mm -hmm. And he, he would do all these things that sound like harps going up and down, but just going like that on his guitar. Lenny Bro also ended up in L.A. before he died. He was Canadian and used to play with uh, uh, Anne Murray. Useless knowledge, sorry. <laughs> I totally apologize, it's fine. I told you I can ramble. All the um, theory stuff is interesting because you said that you went to college for composition. Yeah. I mean, you're, you don't sound like a theory nerd or anything. Like, more like somebody who knows the rules but decides to not abide by them or... Here's my take on music academia, is right. that they're behind what actually composers are doing. Theories are formulated after somebody has done something mm -hmm. to figure out, well, what is it they did? 
so to follow rules that are made up from what other people had set rules it seems not progressive not totally creative it's mm -hmm. it's good to see those rules and to know what they do and why they're there mm -hmm. i i don't regret any of that it's not like i you know regret any of my education but it's how you how you use it if you start writing everything that's all by the rules it's just like you know mm -hmm. you have a one four five blues and that's all you get out of, <laughs> out of a, writing a blues so yeah it's, it's, it's also pretty western yeah yeah in college i uh, i got opened to uh, a few really great things i was in a bulgarian band i forget we played a few places but everything was all these fun time signatures and the melodies were angular and fun and then i played in the um the japanese gamelan Mm. which Danny had, at the same time, had been at CalArts sitting in with the Balinese gamelan, which is much more aggressive. The Japanese one is, Japanese and Sundanese are, are kind of more, yeah. more mellow, which is one of the reasons why when I auditioned for Boingo, we, Danny and I kind of bonded a little bit on what kind of background we had. Because mm -hmm. part of the audition was playing Django Reinhardt. And I go, oh, okay, yeah, <laughs> I can play some of that. And I could fake my way through it. Because they had had a, a guy, I'm trying to remember his name, I know, who was a, a Django expert. He's written books on Django, who used to mm -hmm. be the guitar player in the Mystic Knights of the Orange Boingo before I joined. Stan? Yeah, Stan. Ian <laughs> Stan Aroff. Thank you. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You know too many people. Stan, Stan Aroff was in Boingo, and, and I was there to replace him. So I, I couldn't play like Stan did, but I mm -hmm. played enough that Danny liked it. And we ended up doing it in the show. Have you seen clips of the old Mystic Night show? No. Oh, okay, well, the big gamelon, fake gamelon metal, yeah. metallophones. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they were all made from pipes and drains. And, yeah. They were very DIY. Yeah, yeah, that's what um, Leon was, Leon Schneiderman was in charge of all that. And, yeah, he, he did a lot of good work. But that uh, the other thing that Danny and I, we coincided on some of the background and things that he wanted to do. I learned about a lot about Cab Calloway and Duke Ellington from him, mm -hmm. basically, because that's where we were going. I had to do a lot of research on things that I was only moderately familiar with, but it opened, you know, joining the band opened me up to all kinds of stuff. So mm. that's when I quit Don Randy's band. We had a show uh, someplace in Hollywood, um, the Ivar Theater. We were going to open, so I, I quit the baked potato and the theater burnt down. Oh, I heard that. <laughs> right. Did, did you, was right. all the equipment? So, luckily, most of the equipment that was worth something was in a fire, uh, little fireproof room inside the theater, mm. luckily enough. Um, so we didn't lose much. I, I think Tom Pedrini, his father was Pedrini's music out in, in somewhere east of LA. And uh, I think he lost a piano that mm. wasn't in the room. So that was kind of the. Well, that. that, that uh, for the Mystic Nights, that became a stopping point i think uh we had to regroup slightly after that because everybody was expecting to, to do the show that we've been rehearsing for and had costumes and sets and it's kind of a bummer it it was a major bummer at the moment that but that's that's the moment that danny made me musical director mm. <laughs> because he didn't want me to leave right oh. <laughs> <laughs> you know he's manipulative but sometimes for everybody's advantage okay well that's a big word you know we said we don't do like bullet point questions but we do have them just <laughs> just in just, case i fail for everyone else yeah, yeah, yeah. um performance rituals and anxiety before 
Oh, well, I mean, that's always. There's, I'm always scared and anxious and, and, mm-hmm. and even afterwards. I, I remember at the Jackie O show, you were going to come up and talk to you and you said, I need him. I need fresh air. But yeah, I try to get there early, any, any time, particularly like that, even a big shot, get there early enough to know that everything's set, mm-hmm. everything works, right. and you don't have, at the Ireland's 32, you really don't have time to check everything. And, and you're always nervous before you play. You know, I always foresee, okay, I'm going to blow this, I'm going to blow that, I'm going to blow that. And then afterwards, I'm all anxious. So, oh, I just made a fool of myself. So I quick try to pack everything up so I can get out as fast as I can. I feel that. always been like that? Yeah. yeah. There, there are the few gigs that, this is also my theory of why people stay musicians. At the beginning, it's obviously not for the money. It's because you, you do so many awful gigs with either a bad performance or a bad audience or you know a bad room um then there's that one that is just (laughs) magic you know the interaction between you and the musician the other musicians the the audience the whole thing is just magic and then that reinforcement keeps you going through another dozen awful gigs or a year or two of awful gigs then because you're looking for that moment in the back of your head not not consciously <laughs> but that keeps you as i'm a musician mm-hmm. it's like an addiction yeah yeah, uh, yeah. in a more positive way yeah. maybe um a difficult topic to talk about but we had mentioned that with richard gibbs we mm-hmm. were at his studio recently just hanging out we we're talking about imposter syndrome as a musician no yeah. which is something that seems to happen to all of us do you think you suffer from that I, yeah i think all musicians do because you figure well, why am i is this me doing this yeah. am i here do i i mean particularly when there are fans mm-hmm. and you go okay why did they want to talk to me why did they like what i did I, you know i'm i'm faking my way through it i mean that's take it until you make it yeah <laughs> exactly well that i mean that's what danny's dictum uh, when we had finished peewee it's like well let's learn while we earn and then mm. started doing tv stuff because we did he'd done one one film as a composer and i as a orchestrator and so it was we're gonna fake our way until someone says <laughs> we're no good so yeah I, I think that's right it's unfortunate that musicians still think that even well-respected musicians like you but it's definitely comforting for young musicians like that well, I, I, I can see how at some point it's stifling. There are, I, I mean, it's not like my entire life is engulfed in that, mm-hmm. but particularly when performing, it, it feels like that. When, when you're writing something or you're yeah, write, writing with other people, you feel like you know, you know what you want and you know what you're trying to do and, and you have ideas about what the music's supposed to do and that and things. So feeling that imposter idea doesn't really play in to those exchanges, it seems to me. Mm-hmm. But when you get up on a stage, it's like... When you're kind of giving up control there. Yeah, yeah. You don't have the... It's not on your own terms. It's, right. It's a bit um, terrifying. Ah, you've been there. <laughs> <laughs> Do you enjoy more of the stage now? Is it difficulty? It was, it was funny. when uh, Back when Boingo was still touring, and it was overlapping with Danny writing stuff. Um, we did some TV shows and we had to listen to it, listen to the recording because we couldn't be there on the, on the phone while we were on tour in a hotel room. It seems that when you're s- stuck in front of a computer or in front of a drawing, I used to do it all by hand, a drawing board, 
for a, a recording session for a film or TV, you ache to be in front of an audience and playing with mm. other musicians. And when you're in front of the audience doing a tour where you're repeating the same songs every night for even for a week or two, um, you ache for the opportunity to be with the best musicians in, in the world playing stuff that was, you wrote on paper. So it's... Even now? No. Now, I think I've come to terms with both of those parts of my life. After the band broke up, I kind of didn't play guitar for almost 15, 10 to 15 years oh. with anybody, really. Oh. I, you know, okay. I, I play my guitar here, but yeah. Bear McCreary hired me for some stuff. And I was just like, oh, yeah. And then, then my wife encouraged us to uh, have backyard jams. So mm. during the summer, we'd come up with a theme. A theme. It's like you know, a, a band or a band, usually two bands. Like we do the Rolling Stones and Tina Turner because they were <laughs> there's some connection between whatever it was. And and I'd do ch I'd do charts. I'd find music. I'd make charts so that musicians that came could just sit and read right. and, and play songs that they would have liked to have played, but don't know and don't have to make the effort because the charts mm -hmm. are there. Um, as when we started that, it was a revelation to me to be able to play guitar. And it, I mean, it spurred with um, with Bear actually hiring me as a guitar player, which hadn't happened in you know 15 years before that. Nobody. That's a hell of a long time if it's something that was really your passion in life. It, it, yeah, it was. It, I realized that once I was back into doing playing regularly with other people, how important that was as a musician, the interaction between you and another musician. As opposed to you know sitting sitting in a room and writing something and recording it and that's like that that's all fine, yeah. but the real magic happens when you're with another musician. In fact, even recording the difference between someone overdubbing your vocals five times and having five singers in a room singing with the, the frequencies in the room interacting and intermodulating and the difference between a sampled piano where they sample every single note you play a chord well they're each individual note they're not interacting with each other on the instrument. But you play a piano, and they're intermodulating frequencies in that thing that are different than you're going to get with a sample piano. Mm -hmm. It just—it's not the same thing. I feel that way about everything. That, that, <laughs> really, that really echoes pretty much what. Yeah, we were already planning on asking that. Yeah, but that yeah. echoes what um, other musicians have told us. Yeah. Ah, good. Yeah. But like libraries, so I'm not people, yeah. people like like Ira and and David and John all said that. There's this thing about chemistry when yeah. you play with other people. That's yeah. well, it, I, I mean, it's more than just chemistry. It's physical. The mm -hmm. frequencies in the room when... I, I mean, it used to be they'd put up mics in the room and you'd play. Some of those old recordings sound marvelous. And now they put baffles around everything and nothing mm -hmm. interacts. Mm -hmm. So part of the thing Ira and I did was we'd like do percussion things, but we'd put a mic up so that we couldn't change and that the mics were feeding each other and there was leakage and that old leakage actually adds to the overall sound mm -hmm. so i think it's it's not just emotional it's actually physical it's like weird we, if, if it's too perfect well um we did terminator 4 or something like that and in london and they something about the schedule or the budget we had to do the hans zimmer way which we did strings <laughs> then we did woodwinds and then we did brass right and it's absolutely not the same sound as when you have an orchestra playing a piece of music. Mm -hmm. 
so um, after that, realizing that, and, and everybody had trouble playing, uh, you, you record strings. They tune to themselves. Their fifth in a nice string chord is going to be more perfect than a piano fifth, unless they're playing with a piano. Right. So, so they they tend to using their ear, the thirds, the fifths. Everything is just not exactly just intonation. I mean, not just uh, well tempered. You know, it's, it is just intonation. It's trying hard to recall what I learned about orchestration <laughs> right now. But so I finally read a book that that confirmed it. Is that they they had recorded a piece, Eroica Eroica Symphony, without a piano, and the piano player came and they, they tuned to to you know A four forty or whatever, but right. they, and the piano came in and nothing sounded in tune. Ooh. It's because when you're they're they're playing with the piano, they tune yeah. differently. So Danny and I, we always try to record with everybody in the room, yeah. even if we have to stripe out separate things. Everybody plays the piece. We get a chance to record it once with everybody playing. And then the editors invariably have to have stripes so that they can change things on the dub stage and for the, for the movie. But once everybody's played it, the strings know how to tune what the, to what the brass are playing. The brass mm -hmm. have heard the strings in the room and, and can tune to them and the woodwinds too. So they all the tuning just happens much easier. Mm -hmm. In this Terminator 4, it was like, it was awful. The brass had to tune to the strings, and the strings are gone. It's not like we could go back and retune the strings, but the yeah. strings were playing to themselves. They sounded great by themselves, but you, you tried to get a <laughs> the, the 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 woodwinds on or the um, brass on, and the, there were tuning problems. So, huh. do you have any strong feelings about the orchestral libraries? People who don't actually record with orchestras. You can you can kind of all usually tell. I mean, yes. I, I mean the biggest deal is it's it's very unrealistic sound in that one string note has what six players on it maybe or twelve depending on what, what sample you choose. So you have a, a five note chord going on. By the time you're done, you've you've got a hundred piece string orchestra. <laughs> well, when you go into record, you don't you don't have that. You know, so it's not going to sound like that. You don't use them when you're Danny. Do something, put something together, and before it actually did for the orchestra. Oh, Dan Danny has to do mock-ups. Yes, mm -hmm. that's right. So he does that, and he has it, and then it becomes. I've worked with a guy with John Bryan. Do you know? Yes. Yeah. I always defer to his philosophy. He writes on a Casio. The point I would started working with him. It what his philosophy was: the notes have to make the emotion. The notes have to make whatever's happening on screen work, not the samples you use not that part so when he had something for me to orchestrate it would be this cheap casio that you know i'd have to make come alive which is an excellent philosophy so the same thing i mean danny does mock-ups and he has to show it you have to show it to direct john bryan which is why he's not working much but yeah, refuses to show much of that to uh, directors he doesn't show mock-ups you know and he doesn't like them to take it because what they do is they, they take the demo and they put it in the in the film and they they have to show everybody how that is, so, which Danny does. And uh, his, his mock-ups are, you know, which is good. You don't want them to be so slick that, which has happened, so slick that the director gets used to hearing these mock-ups mm -hmm. in the thing. So when this real orchestra comes, it becomes a different animal. Problematic. This is going back in our conversation. Your own personal purpose of music, do you do it because it's therapeutic for yourself or do you do it to bring 
the joy of music to others? I, kind of neither. I do it because I feel I have to. I mean, I, I wake up in the morning to. and you, I, I, I want to play. Oh, right. I want to do something. Yeah. Um, I don't, I'm not doing it thinking, oh, this piece is going to be played in front of some orchestra. Yeah. As opposed to when I'm orchestrating, it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm getting paid to make this, uh, as a facilitator, make Danny's music or John Bryan's music work with an orchestra to film. The two, the two options were, didn't seem either of them were what I think of when I right. pick up a guitar. Okay. So it comes from somewhere else. I, I think it comes from when I first took the flute. Musicians came to my elementary school and played instruments, and I fell in love with the flute. Right. And it's it just oral pleasure, you know, not... Yeah. I never thought I was going to be, you know, making money playing the flute. It was mm-hmm. like... Or bringing pleasure to anyone. <laughs> oh, we have a friend who had an interesting question. Um, getting the impression that you have a refined taste and a strong artistic sensibility. Is there anything you're passionate about? I've, I've never considered myself the capital A artist. I've always kind of looked at myself as more, I do the best I can, as opposed to... The whole so, ego thing. Uh, well, you know, you... you you get proud of what you do, but I, it, I never considered myself a capital A artist. Um, so I, I, I'm flattered that they they feel I have those kind of sensibilities. Um, I do consider myself a little different than other guitar players and orchestrators. I feel that I have something singular that makes me different. And I'm not saying better or worse. It's just I approach things a little differently than most of the other people I I know and have worked with, mm-hmm. which is great. Some the, the people I work with, with Danny, um, the other orchestrators are excellent at catching what my approach is and emulating it when they approach Danny's stuff. And it's really, I, I like working with the people I work with. You said that you're different in the sense of what's what you do, what you, what you what do, Just between Ira and me. Ira is real rock and roll guitar, bass, blues, and he understands all that stuff. I understand it a little. I understand it enough to talk to him. But I started playing guitar on the flute. I mean, playing playing music on, on the flute. And it kind of, in retrospect, affected the way I play guitar. Even the tone, I used to have a, a Les Paul and the tone was always more flute-like. It was all kind of round and I was playing more individual melodies rather than you know, big strumming, uh, articulated kinds of things. So that's. I learned how to do some of the stuff Ira does, but I can't do it like Ira does. Ira has like this innate feel for it. Um, and I look at it from a slightly different, like a woodwind player, you know. You're kind of thinking outside of the box. There you go. I, I like to think that I think <laughs> out, of the, out of the box. Um, it's like, you know, there's this particular sound that you've got in what you write. For example, I could be wrong, but like using a lot of diminished or leading classic or whatever. And I attribute some of that to my education. Do you know who Oliver Olivier Messiaen is? Oliver? Yeah. So when I I discovered him in college, it was just like, oh, (laughs) you know, non-transpositional modes and rhythmic modes and things like that. that It was just like, oh. Wow. Silly, kind of yeah. wacky. Yeah. But it's the kind of thing that's stuck in my brain. And even if I'm in the middle of a solo, I think those things pop in. Um, it's very particular because people seem to be scared to kind of 
he gets out of the box. The words I, that come to my mind are silly and wacky, but that's really reductive. I'm sorry. No, that's good. I, I have it, a moment with a guy named Paul Cartwright. Do you know who he is? Oh, you mean he's um, he's a violinist. Yes. That plays plays for Baron. He he was in the orchestra with with Danny the other day, and uh, we were at Ireland's Thirty Two, and and he came in and played and playing in the e, a, a minor or something, and I just decided I'm going here, and. <laughs> At the same moment, he came with me to exactly where I went. And so it was just like, okay, I'm not alone. You know, I'm not the only one who thinks this way. Musicians have minds. Yeah, it was, <laughs> it was, it was a wonderful moment. We, we mentioned Ira a lot in this conversation. You two had put together You're a up to thing something. recently. Yeah, he, yeah. Pro he probably describes it much better than I do. I, I forget how it started. Oh, the first one. We sat together and he picked a chord, I picked a chord, he picked a chord, I picked a chord, and we picked the time signature. Okay, four beats on here, five beats on here, six beats on there, and we, and we played both of us on instruments that we're not comfortable with. I, oh. I played like a little guitar I had when I was in high school, and he played a twelve string. He played he played something that was we were not comfortable doing that, and had to, we had to count the time signatures, and, and we ended up liking what it was, and he edited it and put it together. And, so it's all these things of each time we do it, we kind of give ourselves a limitation or a plan right. um, and make it. So it's like the old process pieces where you go through the process and you get, yeah. you end up with something. You challenge yourself and you work with limitations. Limitations yeah. has been a big theme in a lot of our interviews. That yeah, David's yeah. everyone's been, yeah. There. Yeah, well, that, that's the same with film. Your limitation yeah. is you have to have it done. If yes. I, you, this has to be done by this day. It, all the orchestrations have to be ready to, on the stand for that day. And so you can only spend so much time futzing it and, and trying to make it like you want it. And it's like, well, it has to go. It has to move. I don't know if it's that way for you, but I find myself completely anxious and stuck if I'm in front of a white page and I have no limitations and I have to do something. Yeah. Uh, no, it's a, and no, no, that's I put together a band that I call ended up calling Relative for a few years. Where I, I wrote a, I, a one period, I wrote a bunch of fusion like songs, and the whole the whole idea was to put together a band where we could just play free, mm -hmm. with some some guidance with the tunes that I I put together. But given now that I I should have time to do something like that without a limitation that oh there's a gig here, I have no no push to actually do something. Does that kind of tie in with the fact that you kind of describe yourself as being used by others? Like you work better when given orders or not, not really orders? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, when I know what it is is expected of me, it's 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 easier. I mean, I, I get things done. When I'm left to myself, I don't so much. I'm not. I'm not that guy that, that is so self-motivated that he is writing every day or doing something every day. I, I mean, just recently, I forced myself to do that, but that's not my nature. It's like, oh, you know. I've been lucky to hear uh, some of the tracks from the new project, and it is very creative. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of things you wouldn't expect. Funny thing about most of it is that we're two guitar players, and most of it doesn't sound like guitar player based stuff. Only a couple of them do. Well, mm -hmm. the, the one we did the video is pretty guitar-y. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the one that just came out. Yeah. What was that about? The lyrics and, and vocal are, are all, all Ira. He yeah. 
came up with that. He had that idea in the back of his head before we even did anything. And much like before we came in here, he I gave him notes. He gave me a couple notes, and and then we made a little line, and we played a little line with harmony, and we played it over, and we we figured out and then edited it together, and then we opened up a place where we just jammed a little bit, and with some editing, which he did a lot of, he came up with it's kind of a poem, the thing, the, the lyrics that he put over it making the point that he wanted to make which was great we kind of pieced it together we're like what, what does it mean what does it all mean and we're like, i oh, get the opposing opposites. side effects but i don't yeah. understand yeah. The, the meaning of it it's probably just meant to make yeah. our own understanding of it yeah I, yeah i feel like with music telling people what mm -hmm. things are about is kind of a mm -hmm. bad thing yeah Many people figure it out for themselves it's, yeah it's better. I, I i kind of agree because if the Composer's telling you it's about his his dog or something like that. It just kind of takes the joy out of thinking that he's talking about God instead. You know, that's because dog, dog and God. Yeah. <laughs> that's why it came up. <laughs> My daughter's name is a palindrome, backwards and forwards the same. Like with itself. Yeah, like Madam, I'm Adam, and I like. So you're into palindromes. I mean, backwards and forwards. Yeah. <laughs> that's smart. Do you prefer memorized songs like playing with OBFM doing? Blingo songs, or do you prefer jamming? <sighs> David as, had strong opinions about that, so I'm asking. Well, as a player, they kind of overlap. I mean, the whole the whole jazz thing is that you have a, a tune and you take off on it. And even pop music with with Jackie, where some of them are their songs and they have a start and beginning and end, mm -hmm. but we get to play freely and in, in yeah. inside it. We turn a three minute song into. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, yeah, we are excessive too. We are. We tend to be excessive, and it's totally fun. So it's using yeah. one to achieve the other. OBFM. It's kind of like the old band was. Is that you, once you know something that well, you've done it so many times, you find new ways to make it interesting mm -hmm. to yourself. And, and Boingo was never an open jam thing at all. <laughs> you know, I, I we each had a few moments where we got to play a little bit freer mm -hmm. but it was all about a song presentation and the whole benevolent dictatorship yeah. yeah yeah and so to prefer one or the other it depends on your mood you know it mm. depends on what stage you are in life or whatever because you know if you feel it's more comforting to go to go to those, those gigs and just be able to play and not think too hard but then uh carl uh Sila, a friend of iris and and my bass player wonderful mm -hmm. bass player mm -hmm. he has his other friends whose name I'm going to forget right now a drummer and a percussionist and sometimes a piano player invited me over for a free jam on Thursday morning so I think it was Wednesday or Thursday morning and I did about three of them we walk in and just play and it was liberating you know so it, it wasn't even that we had to we had a head you know like I had my, my band where I had a head chart or we had a melody that we'd play mm -hmm. then, then go off mm -hmm. with the jazz form it was play so you're going out of your comfort zone either. completely out of a comfort zone and completely having to listen to everybody very closely mm -hmm. so that you're doing something as opposed to four people doing something different yeah. in their own room it's four people in one room relating to each other musically mm -hmm. so that was that's all that was a joy I can see you're, you're kind of aching to do stuff when you're with OBFM like you're always it's always a different take on the riff uh, a different little lick a different solo which Dif doesn't sound anything like what it was uh, yeah and, and it's not because I can't remember what it was supposed to be <laughs> <laughs> it's always good to hear a bit of improvising we've said that every time but 
you seem to do a lot with Jackie O for example yeah yeah I think part of the original joy of Jackie O was that we could relate to each other and I I mean with with Ira the, the thing that before Jackie O Ira was a regular at the backyard jams mm. and and he was the one that made it all kind of like worthwhile because mm. uh, I had someone like to relate to and play to and we know how without articulating we know how to to keep out of each other's way and to give each other space and that's really joy I mean so that's the that's the maturity of a musician I think knowing when to listen when to play when to be right I am a, I am mature <laughs> at 70 I should be <laughs> you're not 70 yet I've got a couple months I got a couple weeks couple weeks no months it, can you remember your own birthday? No, I can't. <laughs> I just forgot where I am now. It's not that I, I know where my birthday is. Right. It's, it's numbers. Yeah, right. That makes sense. Always something interesting to hear about anything you might remember from funny moments, memories, anecdotes, stories from live shows, touring, scoring, anything that stands out to you or, or that is dear to you. Jeez, um, oh, now I have to think. There are two things I could think of that, uh, that did affect me and had meaning for me. The first was, as a flute player, I had the opportunity. Well, I was playing in a band, the Leftovers from Strawberry Long Clock. They had quit Strawberry Long Clock and were playing a band. Well, they, they had yeah. left and yeah. had a band with me and the other people that we went to high school with. And we opened for a band called Love that at the time were a big thing and heroes of mine. The, Mm-hmm. just I like the songwriting I like the guys the way they approached music and they had a song called Revelation it was big jam it was like a whole <laughs> side of an album and so they at, at the concert they were about to do that and the reason we had the gig is their manager was our manager their, mm-hmm. the, the booker so she she took me up and put me on stage and, and I got to play flute with a band that I was they were idols yeah. it was like 15 oh. and so, so it was just like it was it was a, a big thing and and it was in retrospect it's like oh i'm not an imposter <laughs> i'm here with <laughs> other people that are that want me here and right. it, it, it was kind of cool and and like i said like my other my other theory it kept me going for quite a while so oh, there can be moments like that <laughs> i know that as a kid when i was 15 starting on guitar and bass and drums mm-hmm. I would have just lost it if I got this opportunity I probably would have been too nervous to go on stage it, it, was, it was a period of time we the, the band was actually we opened for a, the CTA which we, we did a concert with CTA became Chicago this mm-hmm. is like oh. just before they okay. started calling themselves Chicago, Chicago. Okay. They, it was Chicago Transit Authority they dropped oh. the other two the first we opened they were next then Love and then Pro Call Harem at this big concert so I, I it was at a period of time where I was thrown into these situations where I, I was like playing with all these people that we did the whiskey opening for Chicago once and we opened for um, a band called 10 years after the guitar player was the flash guitar player and he was been at Woodstock and so the, at the moment it was kind of a big thing so at that period in time I had some good experiences of playing on stage and culminating with with being able to play with love on the as a singular musician not as a band but as being on stage with them playing my second story anecdote is a little more tense we had worked on with danny i'd worked on uh midnight run 
movie. Danny had written this piano piece, which is kind of like the one kind of touching emotional scene in the middle where there's a, a little kid. And he had done it free time. He was just like, and, mm -hmm. and the director liked it. So Danny went back because we were going to add strings. So you can't just <laughs> So he re rewrote it and organized it so that it was I could do something with it with with strings. Mm -hmm. And the director hated it. So he had to go back to the original improvisation and I had to find out a way to get oh. the strings to play with that improvisation. Right. Okay. So this is like I thought I had it worked out, but I had too many different tempos to actually be able to do it with I that was not experienced enough at that I think to realize this and I was conducting so I was mm -hmm. conducting the string section trying to record to this piano piece mm -hmm. and I was falling apart because it wasn't working it was taking too long it was costing money and the bass player Buell Neidlinger I'll never thank him enough he, he passed away last year also he came up to me and said I'll preface that my outlook on those situations I was terrified every time I was in front of the best musicians in the world playing stuff that I had put on paper waiting for them imposter syndrome to call me out and say you're stupid or don't do that we can't you know you, you can't write that that kind of stuff Buell took me aside and said we're all here to make the music work we're here to make you look good we're here we're here I forget exactly how he worded it but it, it was like oh we're all here for that it's not me telling them what to do and them getting back it's we're here for a purpose yeah. and it changed my outlook on being in the recording studio i was no longer i mean i was excited but i was no longer terrified of the the musicians mm -hmm. which is you know the last thing i should be it's like the musicians were on my side is what was it mm. was it terror or self-consciousness it was a little both i mean one, the imposter, where I'm not worthy to be here doing this with these people. And the other was that they don't want me to succeed. Because they have succeeded. They, if they succeeded, and what am I doing there? You know, who am I? Basically, you know, telling them how this should go. Mm -hmm. So that moment changed my entire outlook from, from then on. So I, I really thanked Buell Neidlinger for that. And he, when he retired, it was really wonderful. He uh, gave me... An amplifier. He was he, he was bass player for. Um, he took over the bass job from a famous bass player for uh, the Carpenters, Karen Carpenter. Yeah, and so the the previous bass player gave him this amplifier. It's a Fender concert brown. It had it had particularly big speakers, special speakers in it. But he gave it to Buell so that it would match the tone that he that he'd been doing previously. So that when he took over the, the chair, it'd be the same sound that uh, they'd been used to. And so when Buell retired, he gave it to me. It's just like he said he wanted to give it to somebody who could use it and make it sound. Mm -hmm. And so I that, that flabbergasted me. And it's the best amplifier I have out there. So it's just like I use it for whenever I record out there. As you have said, it's comforting to hear that older musicians that we look up to also have struggled with feeling like uh, intimidated or like they weren't good enough or anything. Well, they perfectly were, but as young musicians, it can be difficult to think, okay, let's get up on this stage or, okay, let's go in the studio and, and have this take done right. So, yeah. Um, we're, we're all in this together. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that, that, I mean, that's, I, that's what Buell did for me. It made me feel that way again. I mean, when, when you go in with a band, 
then the four of you are like, we're in this together and they're just miking us and stuff. When you're going in by yourself to, to play for somebody, it's like, well, it's a, it's a whole other story too. Do you feel like that in producing too? As a producer? You've produced before. I, I have. I'm not so sure I'm a very good producer. Actually, last year I did a thing with a, this woman, Sangeeta. She's a, a new wave singer. She's opera trained and has that, that kind of voice. And I got pulled in, it was her doing songs by John Anderson from Yes. And so ostensibly we were, the three of us were producing together. And it ended up a very tense situation between what I was doing and what John wanted, uh, because John wasn't real, he didn't tell me what he wanted a lot until after a lot of work had been done. Right. It's one of those. Communication. Yeah, communication. Yeah. And I, I was probably guilty too because he was scary and I probably didn't reach out to him enough. Yeah. But it ended up, we, we did mostly what I had done. And in the studio, it was in the studios when it's really fun mm -hmm. to lead the players to you know express what, what you think you want to get out of the music. And even working with the singer was, was a joy. She was an opera singer, so we, I, opened up and repeated some stuff to give her a place to just and and she <laughs> did and and it came out great i added edited some of it together and i was i was happy and she was happy so there are moments of production that you feel like you you have done something mm -hmm. as opposed to you know just getting it on tape yeah, the studio is a great place to experiment and play i mean when the deadline is not too <laughs> right but as a producer you're trying to make the artist with capital A artists um, feel like they're getting what they want out of it you know so that they are expressing themselves properly as opposed to telling them what to do mm -hmm. yes, some producers are really into the whole telling them what to do well, we had a mixed producer on the Boingo album whose name I won't, I won't say but we came in and he like had all his presets so it wasn't like he was looking at our music as something unique. It, he made it fit into his his way of working, which in some level, if you hire a producer who does this sound, you're hiring him to get that sound for you. Mm -hmm. That's not why we hired him, but that's how he worked. And so it, it kind of felt, we, we left that album going, well, you know, we were just a preset, <laughs> you know. Speaking of that whole time, Back then, there is a lot of outtakes. Is there anything that you wish would have made it? <laughs> There's one that I had wished we had put on, I forget what album it was, maybe in the last album, it's called Remember My Name, where John yes. Avila has a great bass solo. Yeah. <laughs> you don't accept that. Yeah. yeah, and it's a shame that one didn't get put out. Is it true that Change has a 30-minute version? How, how long is it on the record? I don't remember, but... I've it's pretty long on the record, but yeah, there was... Originally, it was about... The, we were jamming, it was about 30 minutes, and we yeah. added... Uh, Danny edited it together with the, with the engineer. Oh, so it's lost forever. <laughs> Probably, yeah. The, the original long one. I don't, I don't remember hearing anything longer than what, what's on the record well, that, that was mixed. Some people are really hunting for stuff. Uh, no, <laughs> I, don't think that, I don't think that physically exists. Mm. There may be rough mixes of it somewhere, but it wouldn't be the song. It would be in the rhythm section because Danny wrote some of the song over what we had jammed, which was that, that, that particular album. That was one of his, there was like two or three songs that we just did that way. I, uh, Wolves. Um, Wolverine? No. 
Wolverine's an older song. Oh, uh, pedestrian waltz. Yes. Yeah, pedestrian yes. waltz was that. It, we, right. it, it was like we jammed, we did a bunch of stuff, and then Danny wrote, put the stuff on, put his vocal and, and song on top of it. Uh, I forget what the question was. <laughs> I forget where we started. No, I thought you guys one question. <laughs> is there any like of these songs whose reception you were surprised by the audience? With, with Blanco? At any point. I, I can't say that when we did new songs that the reception was ever stellar. You know, it's just like you go back to the song that you played last year and they they knew it and remembered it and fine. But the song that you're playing this year usually didn't doesn't get a... In, after a couple of those, you get you just used to it. You assume that the new stuff is going to take time to set in. Mm-hmm. The the last album got some pushback, and I because it was more guitar and more open mm-hmm. from some of the fans. But but did you have fun with it? If it was more guitar. Oh yeah, of course. And and we had we had um, uh, Warren Warren Fitzgerald, yes. right. which he, he came to the show the other day. It was great to see him. Really? Yeah, huh. he came Friday, I think. Since we've been here, we've lost all oh, ideas, yeah, uh, calendars. Showing, you keep showing up at all these yeah. shows. Like, <laughs> Friday was the uh, with Danny's show at the. Oh, okay. we were there. Yeah. yeah. He came backstage. We had a nice long conversation. He's, he's crazy. He's, he looks a bit. Uh, <laughs> he's, he's, he's a bit crazy. If you it's... follow his career backwards, you'll you'll find all kinds of crazy stuff. But he was he was the spark the band needed that year. Mm. Just like he was a joy to play with because he was much like Iris different than me he was different than me mm-hmm. and and so that gave so he was bringing what you needed at the time yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> but if we go way back again there is a picture that I saw when you're playing with Lori Lieberman do you remember that yes that was my first that was my first tour Lori Lieberman was being managed by Gimbal and Fox Norman Gimbal wrote the lyrics to Girl from Ipanema, the the English oh. English lyrics. He he was a, a lyric writer. Gimbal and Fox wrote "Killing Me Softly" f- for Laurie. Laurie had had gone seen Don McLean at a at a club and had this set of ideas, mm-hmm. and they took him and turned it into "Killing Me Softly," and and she she actually recorded it before Roberta Flack. So I forget how I got the gig. It was just <laughs> me and Laurie and a bass player, Dominic Genova, who's a wonderful bass player. And I, I must have auditioned, and they, they hired me, and it was we went on a, little, a tour of the East Coast. It was the first time I'd ever been on a tour, you know, away from home with, with musicians. So go out to lunch, and we'd have we we do our sound come to our sound check, and oh, I saved this sandwich for you. Oh, <laughs> that's so sweet. <laughs> but kind of weird, you know. It's nice, like. Well, I think she didn't like the sandwich, so she so right. she saved it. For <laughs> That was that was a feeling I got, yeah. but it was, it was really she, she was wonderful to work with. But you were really young, like straight out of college. Yeah, really. it, was, it was just out of college, so I was, I was maybe eighteen, nineteen mm-hmm. by then. With a big beard. <laughs> I did. Yeah, no, that was a, that was a nice tour. I got to meet Fred Tackett, who ended up playing with um, replacing Lil George when Lil, Lil George died. In anyway, so I, I got I, I got to meet some other successful musicians, and I liked so. Yeah, Lori, Lori Lieberman was that was a great little tour. She even gave me a, she gave me a solo. I used my guitar that I bought to, to look and sound like Django Reinhardt. So I, oh, I could, it's that guitar. Yeah, so, I, so I pulled I it out on one on one song. Wow. It's F hole, uh, Epiphone Emperor, and I got to play it. She gave me one moment for a solo, which was really nice. <laughs> when someone comes to see a folk singer, they don't want to hear a guitar player. 
you took a lot of arts, orchestra and whatnot, but you've composed as well. Mm-hmm. I have had the opportunity, and I took it when it came. I did, the very first one was a movie called The Chair. No, Guilty as Charged. It originally was named The Chair. It was Guilty as Charged, and they paid me enough for me to buy a synthesizer mm-hmm. that had string sounds so I could write mm-hmm. string parts. Uh, uh, orchestra parts it was my first I was terrified you know having to do it but the best thing is that they didn't have much budget but they found the budget to hire an orchestra for me so you know I made no money but we got an orchestra to play Mm -hmm. play the music and this is more of an anecdote they couldn't do it union here so it was in Seattle Seattle was kind of the alternate place because they have they have an alternate union they have a Mm -hmm. they use their performance union for recordings and uh, we're recording with the Seattle Symphony basically. And it was at the Opera House, and we were supposed to be recording in the room. But what happened is that the schedule changed, and it ended up in their rehearsal room, which didn't sound oh. half as good. It was just a big rehearsal room upstairs. So I get there, to, I hired a conductor because I was thinking I had to be the producer. I had to be, you know, paying attention in the booth. And they had to bring in a recording studio, basically. I had to bring in the board, and bring in all the mics and all the cables, and they forgot half the stuff and had to go back to Tacoma. And so for the first four hours, we just rehearsed. Luckily, the conductor said, okay, well, let's not, you know, just blow this off. Let's, they rehearsed everything. So that in the next four hours, it went really quickly. That's what what gave me a taste for, yes, I I can do it and Mm -hmm. I enjoy it. The, The thing that was easy on that was my interaction with the director. He didn't have any money to go back and change the film. So when you get to the point where the, the, the film is changing and or the director is changing what they want you to do. Right. Uh, for instance, um, Desperate Housewives. I was hired because I was bringing an orchestral sensibility by the guy who wrote it to do the first episode. And ostensibly I was supposed to do them all, but they fired me after the second episode. And, and you'll see why. There were six other producers, I think, and at least three or four of them showed up at my presentations and they all wanted something different. So for a while I was chasing all these different things until my music editor at the guy named Shai Rosa stood up for me and said, one of you, you know, and it ended up the writer who hired me in the first place. I followed him. I followed what his sensibilities was. He wanted it to be orchestral. The other guy wanted it to be pizzicato strings and vibraphones, which is where it ended up after I was fired. I think in between me and the guy, the guy they got to do it was one of the producer's buddies, had done shows and, and did exactly what, what he had wanted. In between, I think Stuart Copeland did one, one episode. Oh. Oh. So he, they, were, they were going down the line until they got, they got to the one, that the, yeah. the, main, the guy who ended up being the main producer, his buddy. But the first one was like an awful battle, awful battle to decide who's, who's in charge. And that I'm not very good at. I was I was completely traumatized. I actually, I was going to acupuncture for my knee. I had a, a knee injury at one point, and my wife made me ask about about how tense I was. And so the guy had put needles every place that I would never think of letting anybody put a needle <laughs> in. But afterward, a lot of the night in the air, afterwards I was very calm. And so I went to this meeting with all these people and calmly just took it, you know, and, and made it through without completely falling apart. But that's the reason why I didn't pursue it as actively as I could. Yeah, it was just, I'm just, I'm not 
cut out for that kind of interaction. Danny is great at it. It hurts him too, but he's um, he knows how to handle situations like that better. Well, everybody's got a role that they prefer. And yeah. That's, yeah, that's, that's yeah. okay. And it's uh, maybe um, not a matter of being more fulfilled or not. Like You can feel fulfilled by composing. It's just not necessary. If it was something that I felt I had to do every... Well, I'm forcing myself now, but that's I'm forcing. Mm -hmm. If it was something I felt compelled to do every day, I'd be doing it. And I go, okay. That's, that goes back to what you said. You do music because you feel pushed that you just have to. Actually, one of the mistakes I made, I did Cabin Boy right when they were doing um, A Nightmare Before Christmas. Nightmare Before Christmas was like a three-year process. We'd go in and yeah. re record the vocals. They change. You know, the, the, the songs would have to change to fit the animation as they were finishing the animation. And we finally got down to re recording the score, and I was in the middle of doing Cabin Boy, so I, I managed to, to orchestrate all the songs, but Mark McKenzie, who had been working with us, was a great orchestra, great composer, did all the background music in, in Nightmare. So my choice of Cabin Boy, which nobody remembers who <laughs> but I, you know, I, I got to write music, so. Yeah. And music was only released in the US, because that's not something, yeah, yeah, not something you ever heard of. It, uh, but I did grow up with some of the stuff you play here in LA. But Nightmare for Christmas is one of the things uh, my sister is in her late 30s now. Yeah. And she's the one who introduced me to it. And it was my musical awakening when I was uh, ah, like, probably like five or six. And <laughs> that was really... That's heartening. <laughs> that was marking. When you have a first musical memory, which is the mm -hmm. thing that I ask, mm -hmm. it kind of sticks with you. And you tend to reproduce the things that you hear. Right. It's little musical patterns. Yeah, it stays in the back of your head because that's you're imprinted. That's exactly. it. Exactly, you're imprinted. I remember uh, actually, uh, my dad asked me, "Would you like the soundtrack?" Because I I would watch the movie a lot when I was little, and I would never shut up in the car as a kid, <laughs> except when he put the soundtrack. Ah, uh, okay, so. <laughs> It had a purpose for him. <laughs> so he would probably thank you. Do you want some easy tidbit questions? <laughs> sure. <laughs> that's just what I've got left uh, here. Uh, the tiny ties. Well, that, that they're practical. So they're, they're practical. Back in Boingo, you know, skinny ties was what you did in the 80s. And yes. A period of time we, we had suits and ties. and I, But the tie would fall onto the guitar. Oh. So okay. I, got, oh, okay. I got kids ties instead. And no problem. Wow, okay. That's the only reason. Cool. <laughs> That's literally the only reason. I, you know, I like them after a while. So yeah, I, I had more, I was yeah. became attached to, to wearing them. But the, the, the reason I even did it was because of this fall, flopping in the strings. Yeah, that's smart. <laughs> it's practical. Smart, eh, not so much. I've got a question about singing. Oh. You did do background vocals for yeah, Boingo yeah, a lot, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. You, you don't do those anymore. No, I don't. In that 15-year period, uh, fifteen year period where I wasn't really playing guitar, so I right. just I kind of I stopped singing. I'm mm -hmm. trying to incorporate it. The last uh, Oingo Boingo former members gig, I actually, Brendan came around and let me sing with him. And yeah. I sang some uh, other stuff. But my, vo my voice is, is not in good shape. I also have a thyroid problem, and I find that my hearing and voice... Mm -hmm. Changed. I don't hear my voice exactly the same way, and I, oh. I, I have no like real medical reason to say that, but 
that's the other thing I started trying to just force myself to sing every day mm-hmm. just because it's oh, okay. so good for you yeah, I mean it's it good my, my mom lived with us for years and she died when she was 93 but the last few years she couldn't swallow and part of it was because she had stopped talking and all the muscles kind of go so mm-hmm. from what I read and what you, what you can feel is you feel so much better after you sing and mm-hmm. it's actually physically good for you yeah it's physically good and it's therapeutic. Oh, yeah. 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 I do think I recall a video when you were singing a Beatles song, but I could be mistaken. With Jackie Earl? With Jackie Oh, Oh, God, there's a video of that? So yeah. I to edit. I, yeah. Way back. Yeah, I had done a semi arrangement of um, I'm Only Sleeping. I, I listened back to one of those and I go, oh, I shouldn't be doing this. <laughs> when I heard my voice back, it was just like, oh, okay. Um, this is something that we've been meaning to ask the other members of Jackia, but we keep forgetting. But do you know the origin of the name Jackia? It's not great. No. Um, we had a song called Get Back Jack. Right. Okay. And we had to come up with a name for the band. Mm-hmm. We all brought in names, and most of them were really s- stinky. You know, not very, <laughs> not very. And uh, David Raven says, how about Jackio? And because we had been spent an hour or so just going through names it's right. like okay <laughs> <laughs> I had met him John Avila brought me in and brought in John Hernandez to sit in with Mutator oh. um, at the they were playing in Hollywood at some place you know about Mutator with the gentle mm-hmm. the dance yeah the dancers yeah. and the contortionists and the, all that stuff <laughs> David was there and he mm-hmm. David was kind of one of the main guys mm-hmm. with a mohawk yeah and <laughs> playing standing up and it was just like he was really, really nice, but I was still like completely scared of him. <laughs> just, what have I gotten myself into? Okay. That's exactly what we yeah. <laughs> It's not really intimidating as he is. Interesting. Yeah, no, the intimidation was the situation. Okay. And, and what the show he was putting on is like, okay, what am I doing here? Yeah. But he himself was very welcoming and helpful as I remember backstage. And then I didn't see him for a long time and he showed up with Jackio. Jackio, I really like, was the instigator for pulling all those people. He's probably told the story, so. He's a good, not really a band leader. He doesn't like that term, but he. He motivates, he gets things <laughs> moving. And when, when he can't do that, he gets really frustrated, rightfully so. That, that's how, actually how Jackio happened, is that he had a band called the Corvairs that mm-hmm. just, he couldn't get everybody interested as much as he was to keep it going to get it going, to do things differently, to do new stuff. They were all just doing gigs, playing the same old tunes, you know, unless he brought in a new tune. And so that was very frustrating for him. So when we did, when we started Jackio, it, you know, everybody had some connection to everybody else in, in some way. And the first rehearsal was just kind of special. We all felt like this could happen. It was his impetus that made the band go. I mean, and because everybody had something they could contribute, it wasn't all on his shoulders. Yeah. It's a it's a fun little band. It's like a melting pot of all of your guys's past bands. There's there's Hoot Hoot Feet songs. There's Boingo songs. There's Mojo Monkey songs. We're not afraid to embrace the past. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. Nice. It really looks like you're all having fun 24/7. We are. I think I think of a, a dull moment when when we play. I mean, it's a joy to look over to David, and, and he does something, and I do something, and. He, he's doing something with it's fun seeing the little nonverbal conversations on stage <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that's the joy of that situation yeah. 
that happens with LBFM too. There's a lot of nonverbal going on. It's really fun to see the, the faces you all make with one another. Yeah, OBFM. Um, Mike, the other guitar player who wasn't an original member, I look to him because he knows, the, he's the kind of musician that just knows lots of songs. So he knows those songs backwards and forwards better than I remember them. So if I have a question, I'm, I'm looking to him going, okay, that's where we are, that's it. For me, he's he's the pillar of making sure the song goes the way it's supposed to. Well, he can be the pillar and then you can get to make all these new riffs. And... Yeah, and, and, and he's responsive. If, if I go somewhere else, he's, he's with me. So yeah, know that the, the, all those players are great. There's a lot going on on stage. I'm sorry for what Brendan love- puts you through. <laughs> The worst one was uh, I, I was making, lightly making fun of him by doing the hips on, on yes. and suddenly it's on, it's on YouTube, you know, it's on, it's, oh. a, it's a gif or a gif. It's like, oh, <laughs> I shouldn't do that. No, you should. I love it's, musicians and movement. Yeah, yeah. It's something that we like to ask about just motion <laughs> on stage and the way that different musicians approach motion and stage presence because yeah. some are very static and not very interesting to look at mm-hmm. and others are you can you can see have a whole thing going on it's funny because i always consider myself the static guy no you have a power stance. really <laughs> with boingo particularly the last year you got some fancy footwork right. I, had a, I had a yeah. couple i had a couple little moves and that yeah. lasted for the whole show you know so like <laughs> i do that once I, i'll do this here but I, I always felt tied to my pedal board having with boingo i had to have a delay here i had to turn it off here i had to turn this on here so that every section of the tune the guitar was doing what it was supposed to yeah. so i had those responsibilities that i couldn't go dancing like other people in the band but you did i, I tried to. one song you dance can't remember the one but with John, you're all insane. Oh, oh yeah. Trio. oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, wild sex. Yeah, we always did that. <laughs> I got kicked out of, no, I got reprimanded. I wasn't kicked out yet. I quit later. A band out of high school in college where the, the keyboard player wanted, it was a, he wanted to be a heavy, heavy band. Right. And I, my friend George from the Star of Life Art was playing bass. And, and I got us to start doing dance <laughs> steps because they were, you know, the kind of silly, some of the songs had yeah. a silly feel to them. And he, I got yelled at. <laughs> so you don't do that. This is heavy band. You know, it's like, it's like this is, you know, 70s. Is that why you don't do on stage the um, Dead Man's Party dance anymore? No, I, I, if you if you look, the only time I really did that dance with them was on uh, Back to School, I think. I used to start it, and then I'd, I'd walk off because I couldn't mm-hmm. keep playing. John Ivel, I had it down to do that, and Danny just wasn't really playing when he started doing that. It was So there's no conscious reason why I'd, haven't been doing it. Laura coached us <laughs> and made me and the bass player try to do it at the stadium oh. Oh. The, on the yeah. Halloween night. Yeah, we've heard about Laura. So for like four beats, I did that. And I got lost after that anyway. So You were a gorgeous guitar for the yes. Nightmare Show. Oh, they have my, yeah. uh, oh, you'll have to come in and see my guitar collection. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask you about guitars and gear. What well, I, well that, that was my Gretsch. It's not a Duo Sonic or a Duo Jet, but it's a champagne custom finish. I bought because I had been under so much pressure during Spider-Man 2. It's my Spider-Man 2 guitar. Mm-hmm. Spider-Man 2 was kind of, as far as the film, kind of a mess. The director disappeared while we were recording the score and came back, wanted changes. 
and Danny was going off to another film afterwards, so he couldn't do everything the director wanted, besides it being a disrespectful situation for, him, for the director not to have been there while we're recording, because right. half the recording process is yeah. make sure that you're doing what works for the director. Yeah. Danny was off to the next project. I was left to try to, to clean up some of the stuff that the director wanted, yeah. and it was just very stressful. Yeah. But there was this guitar was hanging at the store, True Tone Guitars, and it had been there for a year. I'd been eyeing it, thinking, I really should have a Gretsch I guitar. I deserve a treat. I, and <laughs> yeah. so, so this time, it's like, I'm driving right there. If that guitar is still on the wall, it's mine. That's, that's where that one came from. And, mm-hmm. yeah, and I've never seen it before. I, I, I don't think I've never used it in public. I've recorded with it. I, record, I played the, the Jerry Casali song, mm-hmm. most, mostly on that guitar. Mm-hmm. It actually it has, a, it has a good rock and roll sound. Congrats yeah. on that. That was a really amazing track. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. We can end it off with either what's spinning in the Bartek house, what have you been listening to lately, and advice to young musicians. Oh boy, those are both very large subjects. I, I, most of my listening these days have been in the car, right. and it's always on. Are shuffle. you a radio guy, or do you use like streaming services? Actually, I, I'm, old fa- I'm old school. I have an iTunes with a bunch of songs, the okay. things that I buy. So it, it kind of like goes through that. So, so it's stuff I had picked, but in not particular order. Like there was a band from South Africa called Witch that showed up. It surprised me. This was like from the 60s or the late 60s, 70s. It, it was surprisingly like Tower of Power. It was like kind of R&B, and, but with an African sensibility. It was, it was okay. kind of cool. I haven't aimed at things to listen to. What, what happens is I, I'll read a review and I'll go listen to it and I'll, Okay. I'll, I'll purchase it so I have it. Yeah. And so that I, when it comes up, I go, oh, I remember that's, right. or, or I go, why the hell did I buy that? <laughs> that that's kind of how my listening goes. It's it's all over the place. That one was next to um, a classical uh, string quartet piece. I can't pronounce the guy's name. Schnipke, I think. <laughs> the certain things excite me when they come on, mm-hmm. and then you bypass the ones you go, oh, why? So that was less than helpful. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that was less than helpful, sorry. No, no some people have trouble seeing what they've been listening to lately because I know myself, I just kind of right. open up whatever playlist is on and, and let myself know. So oh, this d- is interesting. Danny gets organized and he has playlists that he, you know, so I've been listening to this playlist now. Mm. He has one for Hawaiian music and yeah. stuff like that. I'm just not David's that... big on playlists. Yeah, so we, had a, we had a big conversation been... about like, uh, I think we, we, we asked him if he'd ever thought about doing like radio work and he said that, yeah, that's basically how he thinks of his playlists. Mm-hmm. I've been discovering a lot of yeah. music thanks to him, just like that. Is it true that there was going to be a music video for Who Do You Want To Be? For some reason, we filmed it at the, the country club where we had we had actually had to ask the audience to stay after the show and we did who do you want to be i think we did another song too but i yeah so ostensibly that's what it was for but nothing ever happened with it i don't remember ever seeing a, a video of it or that they even finished it and i forget who it was i mean danny would remember but i know he wouldn't remember either laura would remember yeah i was saying we've heard about laura and her antics yeah <laughs> Oh yeah, no. She. Uh, it was funny. I, Did you ever get hit? No. Well, you behave. I behave. I was good. I was good. Yeah, she was a frisbee champ. She made the centerfold of the frisbee magazine. Mm-hmm. And I, I, for some reason, I had saved it. And I, I just, I just sent it back to her last year, because I was going through all my stuff. Pandemic, you go through all your stuff, and I was like, oh, look at this. That's who sent. She didn't have it, so I sent it to her. So it's the last 
question you've probably been asked that a lot but advice for young musicians be prepared for it and particularly these days be prepared for every possibility Mm-hmm. Don't say you don't need to know something because you're not going to use it right now. If you're obsessed with music, every little thing will come into play at some point. Goodness that I, I actually studied music because when Danny had it uh, out of college, you, you kind of go, uh, what am I going to do? And I ended up playing you know, casuals in nightclubs and not using my education particularly. Mm-hmm. But when the opportunity came that Danny needed help with a film, it was like, okay, mm-hmm. I have the background. I can do that. And the same with styles, or I use the excuse for buying guitars to, is to be prepared for anything at any point and to be as prepared as you can in the music that you want to do. And sometimes in the music that you don't want to do, because sometimes that will influence what you do want to do. No reason not to listen to Balinese Gamelan because you're never going to play it. You listen to it because it's inspiring and can have meaning in your own performance or mm-hmm. writing advice i mean it's the obvious don't give up um everything may seem hard at first but the more you do it the easier it gets uh, that's as far as business goes i don't understand how anybody these days can be inspired to become a musician for as a um, living because it's very difficult I, you have to do everything because exactly. it's not like you want to but you have to be able to do everything you have to be able to record yourself and promote yourself and write and sing and you have to do everything to be able to be heard by anyone and in my day I said I could play guitar and get away you know <laughs> I could keep going the industry's changed a lot that way technology and people having like even like young teenagers are able to like record at home and mm-hmm. just blast it on YouTube or whatever it's a double-edged sword that's great but then yeah. it may, it, this is not the right word to use but it kind of cheapens the, the market Right. Because there's so much. It, get lo- it gets lost in the no, blood nobody, of all of Yeah. And in some ways that's okay, but then you don't get, you end up with corporates, big acts that you have to get so many people behind them before, you know, everybody will hear them. And industry plans. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's a different world than when I started. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we're trying. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, like doing interviews and having other sources of expression than just music is kind of what mm-hmm. ha- it, I mean, video even MTV when that happened suddenly you had to have a look you, mm-hmm. you couldn't just be a band doing good music that people hear on the radio you have to sell yourself and that happened slowly I, I blame it on MTV but it just got accelerated and then YouTube and it's like everything you can't have a song out without a video of some sort right yeah oh yeah it's all about the aesthetics yeah yeah I mean, I, I started being a musician and then I went to music industry school. Mm. So I learned about the whole business and law and whatnot. And then I was like, oh, I want to be a tour manager and I want to be a manager and I want to have a record label. So I, I did that. And I was like, oh, actually, I want to do media. I want to do concert photography. Oh. I want to do all sorts of stuff. Yeah, you diversify everything you do. And you can't just do music. Yeah. That also worries your mom now. My mom's like, hey, you should think about doing something. <laughs> something you fall yeah something to fall back on yes. yeah that's why I'm, i'll be certified as a french teacher in oh. december oh okay just just so she can see that my time. yeah well that that was uh for me i was pre-med through high school mm-hmm. and then the first year of college i i don't want to be cutting things open so i changed to music and my parents would keep saying well you know what you should do something to fall back on mm-hmm. so i kept taking yeah. calculus and physics classes <laughs> I, I i kind of enjoyed it but 
just in case. So you could count time signatures. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's how it ended up. Thank you very much for being with us. Oh, my pleasure. I, I hope I, I hope any of it's useful for you. Thanks. It's not about being useful, it's about being interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I guess that's kind of my bent right now for myself is being useful to other people. It may and have been why I said that. Being useful is good, but being your own person and loving what you do for the sake of doing it is also good. <laughs> Knocking on wood for luck. It, it keeps going. Musicians Tea Time is a production of Acid Airplane Records and is hosted by Gabrielle Chenet and Sid Levine. All episodes come with a full transcript and translation into French on the Acid Airplane Records website. Thanks so much for tuning in today. <laughs>